The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning... We need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and concentrate, study God's Word. We do that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is part of His filling ministry, as He teaches us doctrine, stores it in our soul, and then recalls it to our thinking. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to study your word, that that in this tremendous epistle that we are studying, there is so much for us to learn about the spiritual life and advancing to spiritual maturity. We pray that we might be responsive to the challenge, that we might understand that we have been saved for a purpose, and that is to advance to spiritual maturity and glorify you. We pray that as we study, we might be able to focus and concentrate clearly that we might be able to understand under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, all that we are studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John, 1 John, that is, the epistle of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. We are still working our way through the first four verses of 1 John because it is foundational to understanding this epistle. And unlike many epistles, which begin with a salutation, give us some idea of who the recipients are, who the author is, and some idea of his attitude. For example, in Galatians, Paul just jumps right into the subject. In other passages, other epistles, when the Apostle Paul is writing, he says a few things of, of, a, of a complimentary fashion or like with uh, 1 Corinthians, he just jumps right in and starts uh, uh, correcting them. We don't have anything like that in the epistle of John. What we have is an a extremely complex, convoluted sentence that begins in verse 1 and extends, at least in the original, down through verse 4. And we have looked at this in some detail, evaluating the uh, grammar of the passage, that it begins in verse 1 with four relative clauses. Four neuter relatives, what was from the beginning, 
what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the message of life. Verse 2 is a parenthesis, and the life was manifested. It, see, it explains what it means by life. This life was manifested, that is, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in incarnation, in hypostatic union during his life on the earth, and the uh, witness ex- relates to the three years the apostles uh, were with him during his public ministry. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And there John connects the message of life as something integral to who and what Jesus Christ was. So there is an inseparable connection between the message of life and the man who is life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. The life was in him, John said in his prologue to the gospel, and that life was the light of the world. So we have seen that we can't separate the man from the message or the message with, from the man. But what John is emphasizing here is not the man, but the message. But in this case, you can't separate the man from the message. So to talk about the message means you have to focus on the man. And we have studied how the uh, incarnation, the hypostatic union, is necessary for not only salvation, but also for the spiritual life, because it was during the incarnation that Jesus Christ, in true humanity, because he was true man, he was in the flesh, he wasn't just some specter or some illusion, as the Gnostics and Docetics were suggesting, but that he was actually in God in the flesh, that he revealed to us who God was, John 1:18 says, No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him to us. But that he set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age in his humanity by handling life under the principle of the filling of the Spirit and dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit. He did not resist temptation or testing by reliance upon his divine attributes. He did it by relying upon God the Holy Spirit and the doctrine that he had learned as a human being growing up. Luke 2.42 says that Jesus um, grew in mind and spirit and that he uh, advanced in the same way that any other human being does in terms of physical growth and in terms of mental growth, learning and acquisition of doctrine. And then in verse 3, because John has had this parenthetical diversion of verse 2 to bring us back to the subject, he repeats two of the neuter relative clauses of verse 1. Remember, a relative clause is a who or a what. And he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Now, there lies the first use of the main verb. We proclaim to you also is the main clause of this sentence. Now, a verb is, a ver- is any action word, and a transitive verb, this always takes you back to those horrible elementary years trying to figure out all these grammatical terms. Transitive verb is a verb that takes an object. And an object in Greek or in any inflected language is expressed by the accusative case. So if you want to see what the object of the verb is, you have to look for the accusative case 
And that's all the way back there in verse 1. That's why I emphasize that these are neuter accusatives. They tell us, because it's an accusative case, it tells us that that's the object of a verb. So we have to look and look and look, and gosh, that verb is buried down in verse 3. And in English, that's so convoluted that we lose a sense of the direction of the passage. So I reinterpreted that, or retranslated that, along the lines of what we have on the uh, projection. We proclaim to you, put that right up front at the very beginning, because in English, that's where we normally find our main clause, is at the beginning of the sentence. We proclaim to you concerning the message of life, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled. And, well, I don't have the... Wait a minute for that to come up. We proclaim to you is the main clause. Now, the question that we should ask ourselves is why is it that John adopts such a complex sentence structure? In Greek, I'll never forget the time about first, halfway through the first semester of first year Greek. All of a sudden, it's like a BFO. It's a blinding flash of the obvious. And it hits you that I don't really need to know sentence structure anymore in Greek because everything is tagged by these case endings. So you know what the subject is because it's a nominative. It may be at the end of the verse. It may be at the beginning of the verse. It may be in the middle of the verse. But what you have in Greek is everything is set off in terms of syntactical markers in the language. And so the author in Greek can mix this stuff up in all kinds of different word orders. And the author will do it in order to uh, often to emphasize certain things. So the first thing you hit may not be the first thing we would think of in English, but the author puts that up front so that that is, is a red flag for us to say, pay attention to this because this is what I'm emphasizing. So even though in English it's... it's uh, we don't hit the main we don't hit the subject and we don't hit the main verb until verse 3 uh, that that we lose a sense of the what this is saying because of that in english but the author wants us to to focus on the empirical evidence that he's emphasizing in verse 1 but nevertheless we translate it in english to give us a little better sense of his thought flow we proclaim to you concerning the message of life what was from the beginning what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, and the life was revealed and we have seen and give our testimony and announce to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we announce to you also that you might have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Now the point is that I want to address now is the emphasis in these relative clauses. The emphasis here is on the empirical evidence of the humanity of Jesus Christ. We looked last time at the four verbs here, and these four verbs all emphasize the physical reality of our Lord Jesus Christ and the witness, the historical witness or evidence that the apostles had. It was what we heard. We heard him teach. We heard him answer questions. We heard him around the table in conversations. 
We heard him respond in situations, whereas some of us might uh, uh, do something wrong that aggravated us, and we might uh, might have shouted some expletive. Jesus didn't do that. We heard him. We were witnesses of what came out of his mouth, not just the doctrine, but everything. We lived with him. These guys lived with him 24 hours a day. They slept with him. They camped out sometimes along the road. Sometimes they would uh, uh, stay with people and they would be around Jesus 24 hours a day. So there wasn't any way that he could somehow disguise or deceive them as to what his uh, character was. They saw him in every situation in life. We heard the doctrine he taught. We heard the responses out of his mouth. We, 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 he, he, was a, he was a man. He was true humanity. Secondly, what we have seen with our eyes, and this is from the verb harao, which means to perceive, and it means not only did we see it physically with our eyes, but we perceived its significance. We saw Jesus perform miracles. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. Uh, These were the miracles that were prophesied of the Messiah by Isaiah and the other prophets. And when we saw what he did with our eyes, uh, we understood its significance that he was Emmanuel as Isaiah had prophesied God with us. He was a man. What we beheld, this shifts to another verb of observation, the verb theaomai which emphasizes uh, observation. These two verbs together are linked together, what we observed in our hands handled. We, we were physically involved. It's not just a sense here of, of each verb taken individually, but as so often happens in Scripture where you have the repetition of a number of things, it's talking about a totality here. He's using every sense verb he can in order to emphasize that that the totality of Jesus' life was manifested to us, and there is no possible way that this was just an illusion, that he was not true humanity. He was true humanity. So the question then comes up is what exactly is the role of empirical data in Christianity? Does this prove Christianity. You see what happens, and I'm going to make the application here in witnessing. So often when we are witnessing to somebody who's not a believer, the question comes up, well, how do you know that the Bible's true? Now, the problem here is that immediately that sort of puts us on the defensive, or we let that put us on the defensive. And so what we try to do at that point is find some common ground with the uh, unbeliever that we can appeal to as verification of the biblical truth. Therein lies a trap that we fall into. See, we have let them walk us into a box and shut the door, and now we're in their room and we're no longer operating on divine viewpoint. As soon as we let them set the agenda by asking the question, how do you know it's true? And once we say, well, you know, that's let, let, just ignore the question. It's not a question we should necessarily address. And if we do address it, we have to do it from the right perspective. Because what often happens is in conversation, here's a believer talking to the unbeliever. 
Now, the, belie- the unbeliever says, well, how do you know the Bible's true? And the believer's looking for some common ground. So he says, okay, we're going to look for historical evidence here. Now, the point that I'm going to make, so you don't miss it, is there's a difference between proof and confirmation. Proof is like what you would establish, perhaps, on the basis of empirical data in a laboratory. We can't do that with Scripture because what happens is the unbeliever is going to have certain assumptions about the nature of history and the nature of reality that are going to shape and color uh, his interpretation of the historical data. There's no such thing as a raw fact. All facts are almost immediately interpreted by the mind. A typical example of this would be that the believer would say, oh, we have an empty tomb. Now, an empty tomb confirms the fact that Jesus was God. It doesn't prove it. Because there are people, there was even a theologian, I use the term loosely, at uh, Harvard not too many years ago who said, we live in a universe ruled by chance. All kinds of things can happen in a universe ruled by chance. A man can even come out of the grave three days later in a universe ruled by chance. So just because the grave is empty doesn't prove a thing. You see, his presupposition, which is there is no God, the universe is ruled by chance, controls his interpretation of the fact. And what happens is, as a believer is if we walk into the trap in a conversation or in witnessing with somebody of trying to prove it according to their standard of proof, we've legitimized their standard of proof. And their standard of proof is based on human viewpoint assumptions about knowledge. And we can't prove divine viewpoint truth from a human viewpoint foundation. And unfortunately, what happens is these things are not always unpacked for us, and so it only comes by way of experience. I've blown it a thousand times. It takes years to, uh, of, of talking with unbelievers to, to understand some of these uh, things that are going on. In conversations, in some ways, it's, it's, it's like a debate, and, but you're not debating. They never get into a trap of witnessing and getting involved in a debate with somebody because then all of a sudden it's like who's more intellectual than the other person. The issue is not thinking. It's not uh, who's smarter. The issue is not who can argue the most. The issue is clear presentation of the gospel. And so we want to address this issue of what is the role in Scripture of... Evidence. What is its purpose? Now, the Bible does not say that we believe despite our thinking. See, so often what happens when we're witnessing to somebody is there is a, a, a conflict going on here. The conflict is that the believer is operating on a divine viewpoint concept of reality or should be. The unbeliever is operating on a human viewpoint concept of reality, and in one sense, they are talking two different languages. And what happens when you come along here and you say, okay, I'm going to try to communicate on the basis of his assumptions, you blow it. You've already lost the battle now if the guy's thinking. Now, if it's somebody who's not thinking, then God the Holy Spirit often overrides that because a lot of people don't necessarily aren't that 
uh, thoughtful, but you've all run into, and I hear stories from everybody about different situations they get into in witnessing. And as soon as you fall into the trap of somebody saying, well, prove it, and you try to prove it, what you've done is the same thing as trying to answer the question, have you stopped beating your wife lately? See, however you answer that question, you're wrong because you've act, by answering it, you've legitimized the question. And what happens a lot of times is an unbeliever operating on human viewpoint assumptions about life is asking an invalid question. Now, he thinks it's valid because of his frame of reference, but it's, it's not. And so we have to learn a little bit about how to witness and the kinds of strategies that we use, and we can see this from some examples in Scripture. The average person today somehow gets the idea that religious knowledge is something different. It's not real knowledge, it's just faith. Faith isn't knowledge, and that's what you'll hear. Yet, if you look at the Scripture, the Scripture says that that we know things by means of faith. We know them just as certainly as if we had demonstrated it empirically in the laboratory. In fact, I think knowledge based on revelation is more certain than empirical knowledge from the laboratory simply because the source is more certain. But the scriptures do not teach us that somehow you have to put your mind in neutral in order to be a Christian. That, that faith is not some subjective thing of some second order. See, it's that assumption that dominates our contemporary culture that leads people to the false conclusion that somehow you can have a faith and not let it impact the way you vote. Or if you are a congressman, the way you vote on legislation or the legislation you propose. Or if you are running for office, so often you'll hear people say, well, you know, he he lets his religion affect his his decision-making. And your point is? You see, their assumptions about religion are that, that it's a subjective thing and therefore is isolated from the reality of politics. That's their assumption. Yet you never hear anybody nail them on that assumption. And that's where they need to be crucified, is that they're making an assumption that faith by essence is purely subjective and has no objective reality, and therefore it shouldn't affect uh, anything in the real world. That is their assumption, yet you will never find anybody willing to go after them on that basis. And, uh, and as soon as we grant them that assumption by engaging in a dialogue with them, we've already lost our argument because we've granted the validity of their basic assumption about life. Most systems of thought, whether and even most many, many false religious systems, uh, if you grant their basic assumptions, you're in trouble because... Satan is intelligent, more intelligent than any of us, and he constructs logically tight systems. It's their assumptions that are false. And what we have to do somehow is figure out what those assumptions are and nail people on their assumptions or demonstrate the invalidity of their assumption. Like I've said so many times, you're talking to somebody who claims to be an agnostic. So you'll always run into that in witnessing by somebody who's using that as an excuse not to talk about uh, or not to have to think about anything related to God. Well, I'm an agnostic. Well, then ask the question, well, what do you mean you're an agnostic? Well, I don't think you can know, know anything for sure. Oh, do you know that for sure? 
Well, you know, now you've, you've demonstrated the, that they can't live on the basis of their assumptions. And if you're living in God's world, as we all are, we have to live as if there is a God and there are absolutes. There's not one person uh, who can avoid that. And so the thing that we need to point out sometimes, gently, carefully, not in an antagonistic manner. I'm smarter than you are, you dummy. How can you be so illogical? You don't want to let that tone of voice enter in. Is that, that hmm, let me, uh, help me understand how you can say what you say and carry that out consistently in, in the real world. Jesus did that in his interchange with Nicodemus. Nevertheless, what we see in Scripture is a is continuously an emphasis that while history and empirical information doesn't prove the Scripture, it validates, it confirms what we believe. We do not believe in a vacuum. It's not something subjective. Jesus didn't just appear as inside. It wasn't just sort of a mental apparition to the disciples after the resurrection. There was a physical manifestation. They touched him. They, they felt him. Thomas put his hands on the nail prints and the wound in his side. They, they knew he was real, that it wasn't some apparition. Look at passages like opening verses of Luke. Luke says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us." It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. So Luke's methodology was not to just sit down and and uh, the Holy Spirit come upon came have the Holy Spirit come upon him and then just write. Luke went out and he interviewed eyewitnesses. He talked to people. He tracked down the blind man who was given sight. He found the leper who were healed. He talked to Mary. He talked to the other disciples and he got all their that information and then he sat down to write it he was after the truth there the bible operates on the presupposition that there is objective truth and that it is knowable and verifiable in uh, acts chapter 1 verse 3 we are told that Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection by many convincing proofs. In other words, he demonstrated to them the validity and reality of the resurrection. He, he demonstrated through empirical observation that he had been raised physically and bodily from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 8 talks about the witnesses to the resurrection. That he was buried, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Paul's saying, you want to find out about this, there's at least 500 people down in Israel who saw Jesus Christ in his resurrection body. It's There's confirmation. This is not... Something just some subjective religious impression. Second Peter one sixteen through eighteen. Peter states, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such, a, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Not only did that statement was that statement made by God the Father regarding to Jesus Christ at the baptism with John the Baptist, but that um, uh, it was made on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a objective, verifiable utterance. If you had been there with your tape recorder, you could have recorded the voice of God and played it back. This is not something they heard inside their mind, but something that was externally uh, verifiable. The crowds that were gathered at the Jordan River when John baptized Jesus, and they, they all saw the dove descend upon him. They all heard the voice of God. They just didn't hear something that sounded like thunder. That's how they portray it in the movies. You know, you hear a rumbling sound. There's no clear articulation or statement. That's because they're operating on religious, liberal assumptions. The same assumptions that, that, that govern all of modern, modern religious activity, that these things are just subjective. There's no real objective re, uh, existence of God or the supernatural. It's just merely a matter of people's impressions. So the Scripture again and again emphasizes that there is empirical data, but it's not that it confirms, I mean, not that it proves the Scripture, because that would imply that the Scripture, if the Scripture is true and the Word of God, that there's some kind of standard to which it is accountable. And it is the standard of truth. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy Word is truth. That means it is the standard. There is no standard external to the revelation of God to which we appeal to prove it. It is the standard. That is our starting point. And, that, and what happens so often when we are dialoguing with an unbeliever is we want to quote the Scripture and the unbeliever says, well, wait a minute, you can't do that. Let's, let's prove that first. And as soon as we grant that assumption, we're in trouble. And it's not a circular argument because, as we will see, we know from the Scriptures that it's true and that God has spoken and there's confirmation. So we're not believing it. If it was a circular argument, we would be believing it in a vacuum. But there's convincing proofs. There's confirming evidence. So it is not circular reasoning. Now, one of the best places to see how this is handled is in the third chapter of John. So turn with me back to the third chapter of John, and we're going to look at Jesus handling these kinds of objections in a witnessing situation with a religious leader. Now, before we get started, we have to understand a few things related to how people think and how we come to know anything. The question is, the basis of knowledge, how do we know truth? There are two basic systems of truth. 
of learning, of knowing things. The first is what I call in the top square on the overhead is the autonomous systems of perception that have been developed in the history of human thought. In contrast to that, we have the divine viewpoint as expressed in the revelation of God in Scripture. Across the top of the chart, I'm going to look at three different things. The system itself, its starting point, and then its method. The first system of human knowledge is called rationalism. Rationalism. Rationalism technically refers to a system of thinking that starts from first principles that are inherently obvious to the mind. In the ancient world, that was exemplified through the thought system of Platonism. Remember, Platonism is the background to Gnosticism. So that's, there's a connection there, and, and we see that wherever you have a rise of rationalism, there are going to be elements of Gnosticism present. That's why I say that modern liberalism grew out of the rise of rationalism and empiricism during the Enlightenment, and modern religious liberalism, 19th century religious liberalism, which dominates 90% of the pulpits today, is nothing more than a modern version of ancient Gnosticism in a lot of different ways. Rationalism starts off with the idea that man has certain innate ideas that are present in his, in his thinking. Descartes is the classic example from modern history. Descartes used the principle of skepticism. How do I know that there, anything really exists? Maybe God's just playing a cosmic trick on all of us, and uh, we just exist in the, in the imagination of God, and rather than something existing, nothing exists. And it's all just a figment of the divine imagination. And so as he thought about that a while, it occurred to him that, that he was thinking. And if he was thinking, then he must exist. So that's when he came up with his famous statement, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. That's what he meant by that. I think, therefore I exist. I exist. Now, if I know I exist, then, then do, can I figure out if anything else exists? And so on that basis, uh, the starting point of his whole system of thought was the fact that he was thinking. So it's inside the mind, and on the basis, therefore, of, a, of an independent and rigorous use of logic and reason, he started developing a whole philosophical system to explain the ultimate nature of reality and to understand and answer the basic questions of life. Why does anything exist? Why is there suffering? Is there a God? What is the purpose and meaning of life? That, that's the domain. Those same questions are also the domain of uh, theology as well as philosophy. But philosophy seeks to answer those questions apart from any direct revelation. So rationalism starts with innate ideas within the mind, and it uses a method of an independent use of logic and reason, but ultimately faith is in what? Faith is in man's ability to think correctly. That's his assumption, is that my use of logic, starting from the point of my existence, that my use of logic is going to be correct and valid. That's the hidden assumption. Ultimately, faith is in human reasoning ability to be able to solve the problems and answer the questions. Empiricism. 
Empiricism is the, technically, it starts with sense data. It is building knowledge on the basis of what we perceive with the senses. Rationalism starts inside the mind. Empiricism is from the outside. What do I perceive through sense data? What do I see? What do I touch? What do I smell? Uh, those are the, that's the starting point for empiricism. It's based on sense perceptions. It starts from external experience that comes into the mind. And it is the foundation of the scientific method. But ultimately, it too has faith in human ability. That somehow I see this thing. I see this fossil out here in the rock and I automatically have the ability without any additional information to figure out what that means. So it is the empiricism starts with sense information and assumes that man does have the ability in and of himself with no assistance from any divine being to answer the problems and, and come up with accurate true knowledge. Again, the method is the same as with rationalism. It's the independent use of logic and reason, a rigorous use of logic and reason. Uh, empiricist Aristotle in the ancient world was an empiricist. Uh, in the modern world, you have people like Berkeley, Hume, uh, John Locke was an empiricist. And then the third basic system of knowledge, how do we know anything, is mysticism. Now, I always say that mysticism is rationalism gone to seed. Because rationalism ultimately, rationalism and empiricism ultimately in history have always produced skepticism in the culture they dominate. Because ultimately they can't really solve the problem. They can't really answer the questions and they can't tell us with certainty whether God exists, whether Scripture is true, whether we have any meaning in life. And so man can't live that way. Rationalism and empiricism produce skepticism, as they did in the philosophy of David, David Hume. And what happens is then that man can't live apart from knowing the answers to those questions. Well, if I can't prove them logically, and then they're illogical, then I just have to assume they're true, even though uh, they're not true. That leads to subjectivism and irrationalism. That's the idea that, that it's not rational to believe there's a God, therefore it's irrational. That's their conclusion. So, and, and that leads to, to mysticism. And mysticism starts where? It's in the thinking. And it's, the starting point is that there are inner, private, intuitive experiences that are true. That I just know it. How do you know it? I just know it. It's so real. It's so powerful. It was such an overwhelming experience that I just know it's true. Once again, where's the faith? What's the object of faith? It's faith in human ability. The method, though, instead of the independent use of logic and reason, it's still operating independent of any uh, objective, verifiable revelation. It is non-logical, though, and non-rational and non-verifiable. How do you know that was that, that, that God exists? Well, you don't have to know. You just believe it because then everything sort of makes sense. So I'm just going to believe it because that's how I can make sense out of life. And there's no confirmation. It goes against all the evidences, but, but we won't do it. It's irrational. And that's always the swing in history. You go from rationalism, empiricism, to skepticism, and then skepticism always leads to mysticism and subjectivity and an emphasis on, on emotion. And that happened in the ancient world, it happened with the Greeks, and that's what gave rise to the mystery religions in the, um, 
by the time of the 3rd, 2nd century B.C., uh, which were dominating Greek culture by the time of our Lord. In, in contrast to all of that, we have revelation. Revelation. As, as Christians, we believe that God has spoken objectively in human history. It's not subjective. He has revealed His will and word to us. And that is our starting point. That is the starting point of our thinking. That is our assumption that what the Bible says is true and accurate, and it informs us about things that we don't know otherwise. And the method is not... See, the mystic comes along and says, well, if independent logic and reason can't get us there, then... I'm going to, it's, it's not logical and not rational, so we're anti-rational, anti-logical. And if you're perceptive of what's going on in our culture today, that's what's happening. Is Oh, don't, you're just trapped in that mire of old uh, uh, enlightenment-type logic and thinking. You just free yourself up from doing all that exegetical work in the text. Let's just all get together and sing some hymns and some choruses that make us feel better and lift our spirits and then have a nice little devotional and uh, hear about God and, and what an impression He's made on you. See, that's what's dominating most churches today, is they've rejected logic, and so they go to the other extreme and they think that if logic can't get you there, then uh, it's just non-logical, so let's not get into verse-by-verse, detailed exegetical analysis of the Word, because that's, that's a false method. So they opt for something irrational. What they're failing, the problem is that logic and reason, it's the independent use of logic and reason versus a dependent use of logic and reason. The starting point has to shift. And see, for, for most Christians, the starting point never changes. And if you don't change your starting point, there's no renovation of thought. That's why you can be an existential, modern, contemporary, emotion-based, subjective unbeliever and you have uh, you go to church and you hear about Jesus, but it's it's some kind of a charismatic, emotional-based congregation, and so you you trust Jesus, but it's a subjective, emotional verification emphasis. And the next week you're there and you're a happy Christian and everything's going wonderful, but now you're still a, a, a you know an empirical, uh, a mystical, subjective, emotion-based uh, Christian. But your starting point of your thinking hasn't changed. Your starting point is still what I feel. I'll never forget the time I spent a whole message talking about how worship is what you do with the Word, and it's learning the Word, it's obedience to the Word, it's always objective. And uh, 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 two weeks later, a guy in my church came up to me and said, Boy, church was great this morning. I just feel like God was really there. And so obviously you haven't been there in a while. And see, that, that's why, why certain types of Christianity are so popular today, because you don't have to change the way you think to be there. You can, still, you can be the same emotional, subjective uh, un- person you were as an unbeliever, as a believer, and you don't have to think about anything. You don't have to challenge what's going on in your mind. You can just still be the same thing you were as an unbeliever. As a believer, we have to challenge our thinking, though. We renovate the mind. We change the thinking, according to Romans 12:2. We start with the objective revelation of God, and we evaluate all thought, 
rationalism, all experience empiricism, all inner intuitive insights by an objective standard, the Word of God. You don't judge the Word by your reason, by experience, or by intuitive insights. So we use logic and reason, but the starting point changes. And the starting point is the Word of God, because the Word of God informs us of what we don't know. That's what Jesus is getting at when we look at his interchange here with Nicodemus. Now, at the beginning, we are all familiar with Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus at night. That could be for a number of reasons. Maybe he was busy during the day. Uh, as a leader of the Pharisees, he probably had uh, many responsibilities. It could also be because he was trying to um, avoid uh, being seen. That's possible, although John tends to bring points out like this as a constant interplay between darkness and light in the first couple of chapters of, of uh, John, and he's emphasizing that, that he is of the darkness. He's an unbeliever. He comes at night. Uh, it's not that he didn't come at night or he's making that up, but, but he emphasizes that, uh, the, the historical reality of that, because it, it fits this emphasis of, of darkness versus light. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi, says, we know that you've come from God as a teacher because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's seen the empirical data. But he's not quite sure how to interpret it. In fact, he's ter- interpreted it. Um, he hasn't, he's in, has not interpreted it correctly. He does say that it indicates God is with you, but where he goes with it is still to keep him within the confines of his rabbinical thought. Jesus answered and says to him, in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus goes to the heart of the issue, which is regeneration, and that you're not going to know truth, really know truth, unless first you're saved. That ties in with 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14, that the natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. And if we're not operating on divine viewpoint, no matter how close the picture in our mind of reality is, uh, how close it is to reality, uh, it's not there. Because human viewpoint is always going to skew our perception and interpretation of reality. It's going to distort it. It's going to put it out of focus. We can only get to a true and accurate understanding of reality if our starting point is the Word of God. And as an unbeliever, you can't do it. You can't get to truth, capital T, as an unbeliever. Now, you may understand that one plus one equals two. You may understand philosophical principles or history or grammar. You may be able to function as an engineer or as a lawyer. But at key elements in your thinking, in your soul, everything's out of whack. And because you're operating independent of God. And that's why Nicodemus can't, he can get to some partial truth, but he can't get to a real clear picture because he's still an unbeliever. So Nicodemus can't even understand what born again is. He's thinking physically. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. And Jesus said in verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's in the Spirit, back to Ezekiel 36.25 in the New Covenant, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So he's talking about the fact that there has to be a complete spiritual 
rebirth. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Verse 7, he says, don't, don't be amazed, thou modzo, don't wonder at the fact that I said to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus gives an interesting illustration based on wind. He said, the wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't, you, you, you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born from the Spirit of God. What Jesus is, going, is doing here is he's making a very subtle shift. He's quit talking about regeneration, and now he's talking about the fact that, Nicodemus, until you change your basic assumptions about how you interpret reality, you're not even going to understand the gospel. You've got to redo your thinking. Um, the wind is an empirical phenomenon, but you can't predict it. It is totally random and totally variable, and so it stresses the limits of human knowledge. And what he's pointing out to Nicodemus is that the, the finitude of human knowledge, that human knowledge can only go so far. Whether you are starting with rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism, there are limits to what you can know. Now, if we think about how we know things, we can empirically observe things down to uh, maybe with instruments down to uh, an atomic level or subatomic level. And that's the limit of, um, of what we can observe in terms of its minutia. On the other end, we can observe some things that are quite large, maybe with a telescope we can look out into outer space and we can see some things, but we certainly can't see all of the universe. So we can observe out to a certain point, and that is the extent of our knowledge. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm drawing a graph. The uh, axis here is related to space from its... Uh, going from small to large. This axis relates to our observation in terms of time. Now, we can observe, especially if you take a, uh, take a camera and do some time-lapse photography, we can observe what t goes on at the um, split-second level. But we can only go so far in terms of its uh, how, how small an increment of time we can observe, and then we are restricted in terms of phys direct observation by the extent of our lifetime, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. If you add on to that historical observation from others, you can extend that back into recorded history a certain degree. Now, this box that that results in expresses the limits of human knowledge, empirical knowledge. Everything outside of that is just speculative. Everything outside that is based on human speculation, and God is outside the box. Now, Jesus is pointing out in this interchange with with uh, Nicodemus, that Nicodemus is relying upon his 
experience, his human understanding of reality to try to comprehend the gospel and try to comprehend what God is doing. And Jesus is pointing out the, that relying on rationalism and empiricism is invalid. There are limits to human knowledge. Rationalism can only go so far. Uh, empiricism can only go so far. And beyond that, man is uh, just guessing. He is speculative. So Nicodemus is beginning to catch the point. Verse 9, he says, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? So there's a little touch of uh, sarcasm there in Jesus' voice because he wants Nicodemus to recognize that, that he is limited. And in some sense, no one is ever going to come to the cross or believe the gospel unless they come to this realization either, uh, and they may not be conscious of it, I'm not putting it in there as a necessary step or anything, but, but at some point there's a realization that, that we're limited and God must inform us of things that we're not aware of. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know. See, there we have the emphasis, this is knowledge. It's not on the basis of rationalism or empiricism, but nevertheless it's knowledge. Modern man thinks that it can't be knowledge unless it's based on rationalism and empiricism. Jesus says, we speak that which we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen. That is, we tell you about empirical things, and you don't receive our witness. In other words, I'm telling you about things just in the, in the physical realm, and you're not believing me. If I told you, verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe me, in other words, if I tell you things that are verifiable inside the box, inside of rationalism and empiricism that are ver- empirically verifiable, and you don't believe me, how are you going to believe me if I talk about things that are outside the box, things that are in heaven, things that you can't necessarily demonstrate empirically and rationally. Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven. He who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. In other words, the only way you're going to know what's outside the limitations of human knowledge is if God, who is outside, comes inside through incarnation and reveals what is in your realm of speculation. That's the only way you can know anything for sure outside the limits of human knowledge is if God speaks. And the fact is that God has spoken. So Jesus points out in this interchange that the limits of man's ability to know things. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And this is a reference to several passages in the Old Testament. For example, in Proverbs 30, verses 3 and 4, we read, Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. And there the writer of Proverbs is emphasizing the fact that the only way we can know what goes on beyond the physical realm, what goes on beyond the empirical and rationally provable realm, is if it is delivered to us through means of revelation. Deuteronomy 30:11 through 14 states this same thing. For this commandment, that is the law, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. 
In other words, God's revelation is understandable. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Notice, the, try to prove it rationally, empirically. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. God makes things clear. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals it and the Holy Spirit who teaches us. So the starting point is not human reason. And John is not starting off First John by saying that, that we prove it because it's true because we saw it. Now that sounds like uh, the hymn, He Lives. One reason we don't sing it here is because in the chorus it says, He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. No, I do not know that Jesus lives because He lives within my heart. I know He lives because the Bible tells me so. I do not know he, my foundation for knowing truth is not some subjective reality. It is the objective revelation of the Word of God. Now, when we are talking with an unbeliever and we're communicating the gospel, we have to make sure we make the gospel clear. The Scriptures emphasize that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We have to stick to the gospel. Don't get sidetracked. But every now and then people raise legitimate questions. They wonder about certain things. The reason we go to empiricism, we may go to evidences of Christianity, is confirmation, not proof. If a system is true, it will be confirmed by uh, corollary data. And that's what we're going to. If the scripture is what it claims to be, the word of God, then that means when there are prophecies, they will be genuine predictive prophecies, and they will come to be true. That's why in the Old Testament, God would reveal to Israel, through the prophets, certain information, and a prophet had to be 100% correct. But you couldn't verify everything a prophet said, because some of it wasn't going to be fulfilled for centuries. So in almost every prophecy that contained elements that would not be fulfilled for centuries, there was also a prophecy that would be fulfilled in the near or immediate future that would confirm and validate the remainder of the prophecy. Otherwise, you wouldn't know whether the guy was just speaking off the cuff or having some kind of intuitive uh, insight or, or just uh, was a false prophet and just saying whatever his opinion was. So God always confirmed whatever he did with something that was objective and verifiable. That's confirmation. So we can go through the scriptures and you can look at a number of passages where there was clear predictive prophecy. This is exactly why liberals constantly attack books like Daniel and Isaiah in order to say, well, that really wasn't written in 600 or 500 or 380 B.C. That had to have been written much, much later because... uh, uh, if it was written when you claim it was, you conservative Bible believer, then that would contain real predictive prophecy, and I would have to admit that my atheistic, anti-supernatural assumptions are false, so let's redate the Bible so it's not prophecy, it's history. The trouble is that through archaeology, we usually come along and confirm that the books like Daniel and Isaiah were written when they claimed to have been written, and so they were predictive prophecy. And so those things are confirmatory. But they're not going to prove it to somebody. You can't come up and, and prove something to, some, to an unbeliever who has rejected God because, see, the issues in the spiritual life and in salvation are spiritual. They're not intellectual. 
The reason an unbeliever rejects the gospel isn't because it doesn't make sense. It isn't because they don't understand it. It isn't because you haven't presented the best argument. It is because they don't want to believe it. You see, you have to rely on two things that give us tremendous confidence in witnessing. Number one, Romans 1, 18 and 19 tells us that every unbeliever, every human being, in fact, comes to a point that they know without a shadow of a doubt that God exists. It is as a result of the nonverbal revelation of God in creation. Verse 18 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. These are those who respond in negative volition. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. The greatest atheist you can think of at one point in time was convinced God existed. They might have immediately said, I don't believe it. I don't like it. I don't want to have anything to do with God. And from that point on, they began to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But the Scripture says that no matter how uh, firmly, no matter how fervently, no matter how emotionally somebody insists that they don't believe that God exists, the Bible says that the knowledge of God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And what they are doing is they are in denial, they are rejecting, and they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So that means that it's not up to me to prove to them that God exists, because they already know God exists. I might have to uh, say a few things by way of uh, discussion that, that, bring that, br- that brings that reality into their consciousness a little more, but it's not up to me to prove it to them. Therefore, I can relax in any witnessing situation and I don't have to think, gosh, I blew it, I wasn't smart enough, I didn't master the right arguments, I, I need to go to school more. And, and I can't use that as an excuse and say, well, I'm not going to witness because I don't know enough and they're smarter than me. Because it's not up to me. My job is to communicate. It's God's job to convince them. Let's not get confused on that. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 16 related to the, to the Holy Spirit said that when he comes, he will convict the world. That isn't the, un, that isn't the believer. He's talking about the unbeliever. He will convict the world. And the word for convict is elenko in the Greek, which means to present an irrefutable argument. So just as God convinces the unbeliever that he exists, and then the unbeliever suppresses it, the uh, unbeliever who hears the gospel is convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning sin, that is, as it is explained uh, in verse 9, sin because they do not believe in me, not sin because they sin personally. Notice, that's not the issue. It's not stand up in the pulpit and go through the list of terrible sins that people have committed. And and it's always interesting how the uh, terrible two or the fearsome five or the nasty nine change from generation to generation. I was reading recently about Charles Finney, who was an evangelist in the 1820s to 1840s, and the great taboos, you know, we think of the great taboos, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, don't dance, don't go to movies. Well, for him, in his list is you don't drink, you don't eat pepper, you don't drink oil, you don't drink vinegar, you don't eat them. You know, the guy couldn't have a good salad at all. You know, if you ate a salad, you're immediately out of fellowship. I mean, I was just amazed. You know, no pepper, no oil, no vinegar, no seasoned food. All of that was, uh, 
uh, taboo. So these things change from person to person and generation to generation. But when the Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of sin, it's not personal sin. It's defined for us. Sin because they do not believe in me. See, that's the issue. We saw last time that the issue in salvation... Well, there are really two issues in salvation. First, you have to have your sin paid for. And secondly, you have to get perfect righteousness. Christ paid the penalty for sin, but that doesn't save anybody. They have to trust Christ as their Savior so they can receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you have your sin paid for, but no imputed righteousness, you're not good enough to get into heaven. And so at the great white throne judgment, you're going to be evaluated as an unbeliever on the basis of your works. Are they good enough to give you perfect righteousness? Not your evaluation there is not on your personal sin. So in John sixteen eight, I mean sixteen nine concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, so that's the first thing the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of. Secondly, concerning righteousness, that's the imputation of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and third, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, and that was on the cross. It's not talking about future judgment, it's talking about the judgment on the cross. So there we see that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts the person of the truth. My job is to communicate, not to convict. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to communicate clearly, as clearly as I can, n- not to come up with the best arguments, the greatest arguments, the most convincing arguments, the most intellectual. It doesn't excuse me to be irrational and sloppy and lazy. But neither does it mean that I have to master all the techniques in order to be able to be an effective witness for Christ. All I need to know is the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and be able to, and be willing to uh, explain what that means to people and how they're saved. And it's the Holy Spirit who does the work. And if they reject it, it's not because I wasn't smart enough, I didn't have the right argument, and not because I didn't say it right. It's because they are rejecting it, and they are rejecting God and rejecting the gospel. So it takes all the pressure off of me, takes all the, all the responsibility off of me for being a, quote, soul winner, and puts all the responsibility on the Lord to convict them and on the other person for their negative response. And so when we come to a passage like 1 John 1, the emphasis is that there is historical confirmation of the validity of what we believe, and we can know it, with certainty. And so it is the content of this message that is what is proclaimed in verse 3. What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you, and the purpose is for fellowship, fellowship with the apostles. Now, we talk, well, are they just going to have a good party or what? No, it's because the apostles are in fellowship with God. If anyone is in fellowship with the apostles, they're also in fellowship with God. That's the point that he's making. If you're not in fellowship with us, you're not in fellowship with God. If you're, not, uh, if you're in fellowship with us, you are in fellowship with God because fellowship starts with right doctrine. And it starts with understanding who and what Jesus Christ is. So John says, We proclaim this to you for the purpose that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the reader purpose for this epistle. That's the purpose he's writing to the reader. Now, there's a second purpose mentioned, and that is the benefit of the writer. And these things we write, and I have said this is an editorial we, and so you can read it as an I, and these things I write so that our joy, that is my joy, might be made complete. And 
this is not talking about the inner happiness that Jesus promised that that I, I give you my happiness, my, my joys will be made complete in you. This is just talking about John's own experiential joy. Paul talked about it too. He says, I'm just excited and joy, joyful that you have received Timothy so well. You know, that's not talking about inner happiness. That's talking about the fact that, that as a pastor, he's pleased when people are responding positively to the word and he's not pleased, but it's not... See, sometimes we think every time we see the word joy, that that has to do with inner happiness and uh, inner stability. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about just being, as a human being, being happy when you see people who are responding positively to the gospel. And so John is writing this because as a pastor, he wants to, to uh, be pleased that the people are responding and growing and pursuing spiritual maturity. Now, in verse 5, we're going to come back and start seeing more of the content of the message, and we will start there next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have your word, that you gave, that Jesus came not simply to give life, but to give it abundantly, and that you have revealed to us in your word how we can grow and mature as believers and advance to uh, spiritual maturity based on the filling of the Spirit and based on fellowship with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning uncertain of their eternal salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All that is necessary is faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of making moral reformation in the life, church membership, or any other human factor. The issue is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.